You are listening to episode 16 of the Almost Sideways podcast. On today's episode, we recap the uh, recent Oscar ceremony, as well as review the blockbuster hit Black Panther. In honor of the 20th anniversary, we recast the classic Coen Brothers film, The Big Lebowski. We also count down the top five films based on children's books. All this and more on the Almost Sideways podcast. Here we go. Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was going to say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. This is all totally not getting cut out. Yes. We are go for launch. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Almost Sideways podcast. We uh, are coming to you once again from... Our, our own corners of the country. Uh, my name is Terry Plucknett. I am your host. Joining me to, uh, today again is my brother Todd Plucknett and our buddy Zach Saltz. Uh, how's it going, guys? Missing Vegas. Missing Vegas. It was a good trip. How's it going, Zach? Yeah, I haven't listened to our podcast from Vegas because I'm a little afraid to hear what I said. I, did I really predict Lady Bird to win Best Picture? What was going on there? I did too. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I and I predicted three billboards, which turned out to be potentially a a better pick than Lady Bird, but still didn't win. Let's uh, let since we're there, let's go ahead and jump into uh, talking about the Oscars. We are now uh, almost one full week removed from the ceremony, and uh, this should be the last time we talk about the Oscars for a while. I know we've been talking about it pretty extensively on the last few podcasts, but again, it is. A major highlight of the year for movie fans. Uh, Todd, I'm going to start with you. What were some of your uh, your big takeaways and your uh, or surprises, things that you were excited about uh, from uh, the Oscars? Well, I was definitely excited to see uh, Army Hammer with a hot dog cannon. That was pretty awesome. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. It, I, I was a fairly uh, stale, predictable. Oscars. I mean, like as far as Vegas odds go, there were only three upsets, and those were Best Picture, uh, Three Billboards was actually uh, the Vegas favorite, and Live Action Short, and uh, Documentary. And other than that, every favorite won. So they made it sort of uh, anticlimactic in a way, because usually the upsets are kind of the cool part of the ceremony. Uh, Zach, what did you think? Yeah, it definitely wasn't the best year for exciting, unpredictable moments. I mean, maybe the the producers kind of took the the note from last year when uh, you know Beatty and Dunaway messed up the envelope, and they sort of said we're gonna we're, it kind of like maybe you know Jan Jackson and Justin Timberlake at the Super Bowl. We're we're gonna completely reverse engineer it the other direction to be super conservative, super predictable, no uh, nothing unpredictable. But there were a lot of good acceptance speeches, and I think the emphasis on inclusion and diversity was really cool. And I'm I'm glad to see so many of the the winners um, devote their speeches to that because it was nice to see. And I thought Jimmy Kimmel was awesome. I thought he did one of the better hosting jobs of the last oh, 24 years since I've watched it. But don't you yeah. think that uh, Tiffany Haddish and Maya Rudolph should host next year? 
Absolutely. I mean, that that was going to be my big takeaway. Is Tiffany Haddish and Maya Rudolph won the Oscars. I mean, that was that was an incredible performance, and that was coming off. I thought a somewhat lame gimmick that Jimmy did when he went to the theater across, and it was kind of cool seeing Army Hammer with the hot dog gun, but it was just sort of long winded. By that point, we were at about the two and a half hour mark. I mean, we we needed to move on a little bit, and Timothy Haddish and Maya Rudolph were just a breath of fresh air, and it was awesome. And uh, Timothy or uh, Tiffany. Had it should have been nominated for Best Supporting Actress, but you know what? This was probably a, a, a more um, impressive feat to accomplish. Uh, you know, killing at the Oscars. Yeah, I thought uh, I thought Jimmy Kimmel is uh, is one of the more natural hosts that we've had uh, in recent years, and I hope he continues to get the opportunity to host it because he's uh, he's never boring, which is something you uh, could say about some of the more recent hosts. Uh, I think my favorite moment in any of the speeches was um, was the Sam Rockwell story about when he was like eight years old and was called to the principal's office and his dad was like, oh, we got to go, it's grandma. And then when he got in the car, he said, what happened to grandma? And he said, uh, nothing, we're going to the movies. Uh, I thought that was a that was a great little uh, little anecdote for the for the speech and, and his shout out to Philip Seymour Hoffman, I thought was a. Uh, was uh was nice. Um, I looked it up. I, they never actually worked together. I was I'm wondering how they're old friends. Like I saw something later where Philip Seymour Hoffman directed him in a play in Chicago, but I don't. They've never actually been in anything together. I think I heard something. They knew each other from um, auditioning together for Scent of a Woman. That sounds right. Hmm. So there was an upset for Best Picture. It was pretty much a toss up. Uh, Todd, what are your thoughts on Shape of Water being our Best Picture winner? I think it's a it, it appears to be a very traditional choice, but it's actually different than any other best picture winner that we've ever had, but I feel like it was safe at the same time. Like they, like if they're not going to give it to the controversial choice like Three Billboards or Get Out, uh I think that it, it was a safe choice, but it's actually really different. I I don't know. I'm okay with it. It's not it's not a bad movie. It's one I think I have it like ranked 5th or so in, in the nominees, but I'm fine with it. See, going back to our podcast last time, uh, and if you haven't listened to it, you should listen to it again, because we were pretty unfiltered. Um, I think Todd and I had the right idea picking Lady Bird. It, we, we thought that maybe Get Out and Three Billboards would sort of cancel each other out. It's just that we picked the wrong film. Like, we thought Lady Bird would, get, would garner enough second and third place votes to kind of put it over the top on, this, on the second and third round of ballots. But really, it was, it was the, the Shape of Water that presumably got a lot of the second and third place votes from the ballots that, whose first place votes were Get Out and Three Billboards. At least that's, that's my hypothesis. I don't know. What, what do you think about that theory, Todd? Uh... Yeah, that's true. I I think a, a lot of the people that weren't predicting Shape of Water were going to the the trend that the SAG ensemble has uh, it, uh the winner has been nominated for the SAG ensemble every year since 1995, but I think it's it's also misleading because like Shape of Water got three acting nominations, so obviously the actors loved it. It I I think that was the only reason at least for me that I was holding back on predicting that because the actors branch is obviously the biggest branch in any of the Oscar in any Oscar branch, so it obviously, well, yeah, I mean, it must have had a lot of a lot of support and uh, high on people's ballots. Not necessarily number one, but see, it was never going to win any acting Oscars. So, like that, to me, was sort of a red flag. It wasn't going to win screenplay, and um, you know, you look back on this on the stat that, like, you know, the 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 leading uh, 
vote getter for nominations hasn't won best picture in like 15 years i mean it's you know that it, kind of bucks the recent trend of the more kind of intellectual screenplay driven story driven movie winning best picture i was very doubtful it was going to win actually but so it was, it was sort of a shock yeah i think the way we were looking at it um Three Billboards and Shape of Water kind of had emerged as has as co-favorites, but we never really talked about Shape of Water because I think all three of us kind of assumed if it came down to those two, Three Billboards was probably going to pull it out. And so it was, was it going to be Three Billboards or Get Out or Lady Bird, which were kind of co-favorites as the dark horse in the race. And um, I think Lady Bird was canceled out as soon as uh, Get Out and Jordan Peele won uh, original screenplay. I think that made made it uh, seem like that was definitely like third place in the running in that dark horse to potentially get in. And we just never considered Shape of Water as actually that that strong of a contender to take down three billboards. I think Guillermo gives good acceptance speeches. I think that was a big part of it. I mean, I've always had this theory about the reason why Sandra Bullock won Best Actress in 09 was because she gave great acceptance speeches. And I think one of the narratives of this award season was Guillermo gave great acceptance speeches. So I think that may have helped some some of the more fickle voters, in my mind. But I don't know. Overall, I, I don't think it... I mean, I would tend to agree with Todd. It was certainly in the middle of, of the Best Picture nominees for, for me personally. I give the film two and a half stars. I give it a mild thumbs down. I do not think people will be talking about this film in three years, let alone three months. I may have gone on a Facebook rant about it after it won. I don't know. But it is cool to see that this is... I don't know if you saw but this is the first time that a Best Picture has won with a female protagonist since... Can, can you name the last Best Picture with a female protagonist? Um, I'm going to say Sounds of the Lambs. No, more recent than that. Does Titanic the, count? Yeah, but it's more recent than that, too. Chicago? They, they, Chicago. The answer is Million Dollar Baby. Oh, oh yeah. Baby, yeah. But, but, it's, but it's still, I mean, still been 14 years, and there was, a, there was a really interesting graphic that was circulating on Twitter on Monday about um, this, the, uh, the best pictures of the last 20 years, percentage of dialogue spoken by men and women, and overwhelmingly, every single best picture has been uh, highest percentage, you know, higher percentage of, of men uh, speaking, and it would probably be the same for The Shape of Water, given that Sally Hawkins doesn't talk at all in the movie. But it was nice to see again. If we're going off the theme of inclusivity and diversity, that film certainly fit the mold of uh, the Oscars for this year. And you know, I mean, give it give it props for that. I just wish it had been a better movie. I think also with Guillermo del Toro winning best uh, best director and his pic- his movie winning best picture, you uh, can now kind of safely say that del Toro, Cuaron, and Yaratu are like this generation's Spielberg, Coppola, Scorsese, De Palma, Lucas. that whole crew, Gimino. Lucas. Yeah, I, I think they they have definitely emerged as as like the Mexican well, version of that. Well, they won four of the last five best directors. So, yeah, there's that. All right. Uh, so that is our, uh, our Oscar recap. Uh, one last uh, bit of Oscar, uh, Oscar news to discuss. We had our 10th our annual Oscar challenge. And uh, looking at the four of us, uh, Adam and I tied for the best score out of the four of us with an 18 out of 24. Uh, Todd had a 17 out of 24. Uh, Zach had 15 out of 24. Um, my my favorite uh, my favorite uh, picks that I had I did have Icarus winning best documentary, and um, I had Heaven is a Traffic Jam on the 405 winning documentary short. 
Um, and uh, so those are those are my my great stabs that I was I was happy that I that I was able to get. Um, but unfortunately, stabs didn't really pan out in any other category because there were no <laughs> no upsets. Exactly, exactly. Um, overall, in our Oscar challenge, uh, it, there was a four-way tie for the win with a with twenty out of twenty-four correct answers. And so, congratulations to John Huerta, Amy K, Alicia Malone, and Griffin Schiller for winning our Oscar challenge this year. Um, Congratulations on besting all of us. And for those that are wondering, our friend Kyle got an 18 out of 24. He usually ends up winning, but he also tied for the best of uh, best of the experts, too. So uh, there you go. That is the results of the Oscar challenge. Zach, what happened, man? I don't know. I, it, it all went downhill when I didn't pick Kobe to win. And, you know, I heard some interesting rants about Dear Basketball, which I still have not seen yet, even though I think now it's online. Um, a lot of people were talking about, well, by a lot of people, I mean Bill Simmons on his uh, Oscar recap podcast with Jimmy Kimmel. He mentioned that Dear Basketball was directed by, like, a legendary Disney animator, and it had John Williams' uh, music. So, like, they were talking about how, you know, every every athlete or every showbiz person should just stack up on a, on a short documentary and win that category with, like, all the A-list people in Hollywood. I thought that was a great idea. Kobe was saying that uh, winning the Oscar had him more excited than any of his NBA championships. That sounds about right. Is that narcissism? That might be. <laughs> that may be. <laughs> There's no I in team, but uh, but uh, there is when you uh, when you win an Oscar. All One other right. thing I saw about the Oscars is Robert Lopez apparently is the first person to have two egots. Now he's won two of every award. I saw that. That that's ridiculous. Yeah, and Kobe has now won the LMFAO, the the Larry O'Brien Trophy, the Finals MVP, regular season MVP, and uh, an Oscar. Very nice, very nice. An all-star game MVP, I'm sure. Oh, oh yeah, that was the that was the A, yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that's good. That's good. Kobe Bryant won. Stanley Kubrick nothing. Oh, yeah, he has one. He won for visual effects. Oh, okay. So they're tied. They're yeah, they're he, equally he, he good was known filmmakers. For, he was known for his visual effects, wasn't he? <laughs> Must have been. Todd, Just like you... Kobe's known for his animation. <laughs> Todd, did you see that one of your uh, one of your top guys on your uh, on your best uh, best actors never to be nominated for an Oscar got an honorary one this year? Donald Sutherland. Yeah, I did see that. Uh, it's kind of weird that they don't actually have that speech anymore, but because they have like four or five a year. But yeah, that 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 does that take him off the list? It's kind of hard to hard to well, hard to judge. Technically, he still hasn't been nominated. But he's won. Supposedly. But he hasn't been nominated. So How can you win if you haven't been nominated? Is this like a, is this a mind game? I'm confused. <laughs> I think that means it's time to move on. <laughs> All right, moving on from the Oscars, uh, we are now going to move on to movie reviews. I love this movie so much. Some really excellent performances. I did not really like this film at all. Movie reviews. And we're going to talk about a film that has blown up the box office. It was actually mentioned several times at the Oscars. It's been winning the box office ever since it came out. Uh, and it's been, uh, it's been a while since it came out, but we haven't had a chance to talk about it yet. And we have all seen it now. So we are going to review Black Panther. 
the latest uh, MCU film uh, starring Chadwick Boseman. Um, and uh, I think there are uh, uh, some differing opinions on, on this film. So uh, who wants to start this out? Who wants to talk about it first? Uh, so I didn't love Black Panther as much as everybody else did. Uh, I think it's really like painfully by the numbers, like origin story stuff. Like, I mean, I think it's only disguised as being different. I think it's actually sort of offensive to say it's original just because it's got minorities and women like in charge of like starring in and making the movie. It just, I mean, I feel like that's just, that is, the like, the wrong message to give off. I don't think it's that great. I think Chadwick Boseman's a horrible actor, but somehow this might be his actual best performance. And uh, Michael B. Jordan steals the show, mainly because I feel like Killmonger's, like, points and his, like, motives are way more understandable than T'Challa's. And I, I think Michael B. Jordan is a great villain, one of the best Marvel villains for sure. I, I thought the CGI was really bad in the movie, especially in the scene w on Wakanda where there's like that uh, that like hill that all the all the natives are sitting on. Like it looked like unfinished. It was almost like it needed 3D, but they kept showing it, and I was like, "Wow, that looks this really bad shot." Like what happened there? There's like really like really bad visuals a lot of the time. But uh, Coco does have some scenes that are as well directed as any Marvel movie, but they're few and far between. Especially the climactic battle scene was really boring. I almost fell asleep. Uh, but I love the scenes in Oakland. Like, I, I thought I, maybe that just reminded me of a movie that could have been a lot more grounded and interesting, but it really sort of wasn't. I, I don't know. Maybe it's superhero fatigue. I don't know. Maybe it's, is this a bad comic to begin with? But they're really talented people involved. It just didn't really turn out all that interesting. It's, it's not a great movie, but it, it's fine, and I give it two and a half stars. Zach, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, I'm just going to preface this by saying that when I watch Marvel movies, I don't really pay attention to the plot. Um, so I don't know if I could completely pass the uh, plot synopsis exam for Black Panther. Um, but I will say that I enjoyed it a lot more than Todd did. Uh, I liked uh, the... Well, obviously I liked that this is, this is the first um, black superhero in the, in the MCU. Um, and I like the the fact that it, it wasn't just a, a you know a black male character, but that that uh, you know the women around him had really powerful uh, roles and were powerful warriors as well. Uh, I thought Lupita Nyong'o in particular was awesome in the movie. Um, I think I, the the premise I thought was really interesting. I liked that there wasn't a whole lot of crossover. This is definitely not Thor Ragnarok, where like Hulk shows up in the middle of the movie and plays a major you know prominent role in it. This is essentially a standalone movie with a pretty highly developed and sophisticated backstory, which I really like. So I would I would agree with Todd that the prologue is really awesome and it plays a significant role in the film. Um, I like Chadwick Boseman in the film. I do agree that Michael B. steals the show. There is a not-so-subtle undercurrent of Malcolm versus Martin in terms of the struggle between T'Challa and Killmonger. And I would also agree with Todd that Killmonger is probably the more interesting character. Um, but, you know, this is also about how T'Challa is representative of, you know, the, the, this uh, hero who's torn um, in his past and between his loyalties. And I've read a lot of articles talking about how he, like, represents a new kind of Marvel hero, like a more millennial type hero, which is really cool. Um, 
I liked the film a lot. In fact, I think it actually got better as it went along. I thought the scenes at the beginning were a little routine, and even though they were exciting, like the car chase in Korea, that was a cool scene. I actually like how the movie then, and maybe it's because, you know, Killmonger plays a more prominent role in the second half of the film, but I enjoyed that development. Uh, I really liked the performances. I particularly, well, besides Michael B., I thought um, uh, Angela Bassett was really good. Sterling K. Brown was excellent. Um, and Daniel Kaluuya was really good, too, in a smaller role, but, uh, you know, really good to see him nonetheless. So I give this movie a solid three stars. I may have to watch it again, and it may even uh, go higher, because it's, the more I've thought about it, the more I actually like this film. So for me, I think I'm somewhere uh, somewhere in between you guys. I, I see both points. Now, um, on the whole, I like superhero movies more than either of you. Um, so it takes a lot for me to give a superhero movie a thumbs down because usually the story is, is entertaining, the film is entertaining all throughout. Um, I thought this was a good uh, Marvel film. I didn't think it was a great Marvel film. Uh, as I was thinking about it, I kept on thinking I would compare this very similarly to Wonder Woman, which came out last year, and it's kind of working towards one of the points that Todd made. Um, in the fact that both Wonder Woman and Black Panther, they're good films, they're not great films, but they were elevated to this monumental blockbuster because of the groundbreaking nature that they had. Um, and they were uh, billed as something greater than they actually were because um, Black Panther was uh, mostly all black cast and directed and written by a black man and Wonder Woman was your first major female superhero directed by a woman as well. Um, with all that said, I did enjoy it. I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, yes, Michael B. Jordan steals the show. Um, the the one thing and this is this is the the superhero fan in me i i wish they had uh not waited until the the ending credit scene to uh to bring out the winter soldier to bring out bucky because um as an mcu fan i'm like oh we're gonna see wakanda that's where bucky has been this entire time since civil war and they just like vaguely reference him one time and then show him in the in the ending credit scene and i thought oh you got to show him a little sooner than that you can't just ignore the fact that this guy has been there this entire time for the last two or three years um but uh i'm giving it a, a three stars um and like i said i'm somewhere in between you guys but i also like superhero movies a lot more than you guys do too well, most of my ratings for superhero movies live in the two and a half to three star range. I don't really like them all that much, so I, I don't hate the movie. I just don't really understand why everyone's so ecstatic about it and why it's like a massive box office hit and why it got like almost universal critical acclaim. It just it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. It's 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 fine. It's it's right there. Same same kind of thing with Wonder Woman. Like you said, it's it's a fine movie. It's it's fun to watch for most of it. I don't know. I, but, I mean, the whole point is that th these are not superheroes who look like freaking Robert Downey Jr. or a Hemsworth. I mean, these this is a diverse cast, and the United States is a diverse country, and it's great to see representation both on screen and behind the camera. And we forgot to mention Rachel Morrison, the Oscar-nominated cinematographer for Mudbound, was also the cinematographer for this film. She was also DP for Ryan Coogler's film Fruitvale Station. And this was written by Ta-Nehisi Coates. I mean, it's really great seeing that inclusivity. And I don't know, for me, that's far more important than, you know, adherence and fidelity to the Marvel cinematic world. I mean, 
I want to see uh, a cinematic landscape that looks like the real world. And this is, actually looks like the composition and demographics of not just the United States, but also Africa, where a, a large chunk of this movie takes place. So to me, that was, that was really important. And it was great seeing actors that don't always traditionally get spotlights in movies because, you know, Hollywood is run by white men. So uh, I, that's, that's the significance of the, of the movie for me. And I don't love superhero movies either, but this one really stuck out and I thoroughly enjoyed it for that purpose exactly that purpose it doesn't make it a better movie though that, yeah, that's what I think i'm saying it does. I, th I think that Absolutely that's why i said it it's almost offensive to call it a better movie just because of that so <laughs> i don't know but you can't you can't remove it from it though i mean that's it, it's such an important part of the movie and, and that being said i mean i thought it was better than thor ragnarok i thought it was a better than you know pretty much every other marvel movie i've seen in recent years so so zach are, are you saying that the the demographic of a film can single-handedly improve the quality of a film. Not single-handedly, but it can have a significant role in it. I mean, I think when people when people watch a movie, watching movies is about identification. And for a number of people who go to the movies, they can't identify with a particular character's background, or they can't identify with a character's, uh, you know beliefs or experiences and I think in this movie there's a lot of identification that can go on whether you're black or white which is really cool so I, I think it plays a major role you're right it's obviously you know not the only thing that matters but with this movie I think you know when Todd's asking the question why people gone to see this movie it's because finally we can identify with one of these superheroes um, okay so uh, I, I think this is a really interesting discussion that that uh, that we had about uh, about uh, about this film because I think it, it also plays into a lot of what um, just went on at the Oscars and a lot of what's going on in Hollywood right now. Um, so I'm giving it three stars. Zach, you're giving it three. Uh, Todd, you're giving it two and a half, correct? Correct. All right. And uh, if you're one of the few people out there that has not seen Black Panther yet, it's definitely, uh, definitely worth a watch. All right. We are now moving on. Uh, to another uh, another uh, category of uh, or another topic that we like to talk about on these podcasts. Um, last uh, last podcast when we were in Vegas, we weren't able to talk about um, any of the milestones that are happening in March. Um, we usually give a milestone review of something that's celebrating an anniversary for the month, and we didn't get to do that because we were focusing mainly on the Oscars and on us being in Vegas. Uh, but one of the big uh, anniversaries this month is this is the 20th anniversary of The Big Lebowski, uh, one of the Coen Brothers' uh, classic cult classics um, that has really kind of grown in popularity over, uh, over the last, uh, well, ever since it came out. It's continuously grown and gotten this real cult following. So what we're going to do today is we are going to try and recast the Big Lebowski, um, as we uh, as we cast the remake here. Uh, this was kind of an interesting one to try and recast uh, because this was such a uh, a unique movie in itself. It is such a uniquely Coen Brothers movie. So trying to find a new direction and some new people to take on some of these roles were uh, were definitely interesting. Wouldn't you say, guys? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I'm a big fan of the Big Lebowski. I will say I have a Big Lebowski shirt, and it was my poker playing shirt in uh, in in Vegas. It didn't serve me too well, um, but uh, I, it sure it sure uh, it sure tried. Um, 
as uh, as as the shirt said, the dude abides. Um, but let's get let's hop into this, and uh, we're gonna start by um, looking at our writer director combinations for who would make this remake. And Zach, I'm gonna start with you. Who would you uh, who would you have writing and directing your uh, your remake of The Big Lebowski? All right. Well, before I get to that, I want to say one or two things about The Big Lebowski. First of all, Terry, I'm surprised you didn't mention this. The first time I ever saw The Big Lebowski was with you in college. I'd never seen it before. I had and forgotten you, that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we watched it in East Hall Lounge. May, I mean, maybe you had obviously seen it before, so maybe I, I wouldn't know why you would remember. But it was the first time I had seen it. And you were just telling me about how awesome it is, and Jeff Bridges is amazing, and it's the Coen brothers. And i got to be honest, I watched it, and I didn't get it. Now, maybe it was because I was not under the... Uh, uh, I, I didn't have any illicit substances on me, and uh, maybe I, I wasn't intoxicated enough. Maybe that was part of the problem. Uh, but I think I was watching it under this veneer of, like, you know, I want a really strong story, like, you know, uh, Barton Fink or something like that. I want a sophisticated screenplay. And, and this movie was, was not that. Uh, so this movie is all about attitude and mood. Um, and if you're looking for, like, a sophisticated, elaborate storyline like Fargo or something or Miller's Crossing, then this is the wrong movie for you. And I think that's why so many people were maybe disappointed by it in 1998. I mean, it was a relative box office failure at the time. And now it's, you know, it's a cult film because people have, have realized over the last 20 years this is unlike a lot of Cohen movies and you sort of have to take it as its own sort of isolated thing. So, well, and it was it was its it was the Cohen's follow-up to Fargo to too. To Fargo, exactly. Yeah. I mean, in Fargo people have to remember, I mean, the Cohen brothers were cult filmmakers until Fargo, but relatively few people knew about them. And when Fargo came out and they won an Oscar for it, you know, they were suddenly they were sort of in the Tarantino range. I mean, people were really excited to see what they would do next. And even if you read Ebert's review of The Big Lebowski, he's really kind of luke he gave it a thumbs up, but he's really kind of lukewarm about, you know, is this really where the Cohen brothers are going? And you know, there were sort of debates about that. So, not that I, I don't really remember when it came out. I was only ten years old. But that being said, looking at the director screenwriter combo, well, really, there were two people that I thought of. Well, technically three, but 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 two groups of people that I thought were the only people that could could approach this material. And those people were uh, Jim Jarmusch and the Softy brothers, Benny and Josh. So in my remake, I think it would be like a three-way collaboration between them. Maybe Benny, maybe uh, Josh works on the screenplay and Benny and Jim kind of take the reins at direction. I don't know. But just a three-way collaboration would be freaking awesome. All right. Uh, Todd, now, uh, Todd, you're not, uh, not the biggest fan of The Big Lebowski, and you rewatched it recently for this. Um, so tell, tell us a little bit about what uh, your thoughts are of the movie and who you would have as the writer-director. Uh, yeah, I'm, I don't really get the movie all that much either. Like, when I was watching it again, I really felt like it was a classic 90s comedy. It really felt like an Adam Sandler movie. It's not that far removed from Billy Madison and stuff like that. It's really sort of bizarre and juvenile, and I, I don't really oh. get it that much. I'm okay. I'm okay with it. I, I, I watched it again and I was I was I was laughing, but I I'm just not that that big of a fan. So when I was watching it, I was trying to come up with something alternative, and I I came up with like a whole cast and crew of uh of my uh exclusively Spanish version of the movie because of a, a couple of casting choices that I thought were perfect, and I I kept them on my American version too. But like it was going to be written and directed by Pedro Almodovar, which would have given it a very different feel uh, and uh, probably more homoerotic uh, feel to a lot of scenes. But uh, 
that would have been interesting. But my American version is written and directed by Pamela Adlon, who is, um, she has her show Better Things right now, and she also uh, wrote and directed some of the best episodes of Louie. And uh, so I think that would give it a, a good dark comedy, real-life feel that uh, I think the movie needs. All right. Uh, for my uh, writer and director, um, I was looking at The Big Lebowski and how it's it's this quirky, uh, quirky dark comedy, but also I would see it now as almost like a stoner comedy. And so uh, who better to write a stoner uh, comedy than Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg? And, uh, Ooh, and if they're call. writing it, then it has to be directed by David Gordon Green. So that, that's my uh, writer-director combination for the Big Lebowski remake. Well, they could have directed it, too. Yeah, David Gorgreed's too busy working on Halloween. <laughs> and, yeah. And Suspiria and all those other random movies that he's making. Okay, okay. So, uh, with, with that set as the groundwork, uh, our, our main character, uh, the Big Lebowski, also known as the Dude or his Dudeness or El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. Duder. Um, for originally played and honestly only ever could be played by Jeff Bridges, uh, Zach, who would uh, you uh, select to take on the the beard and house robe of the dude? I mean, you're right, Terry. It's impossible, really, to think of anyone else doing this. But I, there was one actor that occurred to me, and uh, he's not an actor that we've talked about a lot on this podcast. But I'm going to mention him anyway. Um, his name is Peter Simonischek. And he was the lead actor in uh, the great German film Tony Erdmann. I knew it. <laughs> and uh, I think he would make an excellent dude. You know, he's like six foot three, two hundred and twenty pounds, and he he can wear a wig like no one else. And I could see him in a bathrobe going to the grocery store at two a.m. in the morning looking for white Russian mix, and trying to find his rug. And so absolutely, and he could do a German language version because you know Todd's talking about the Spanish language version. Let's make this an international national cosmopolitan masterpiece so peter simonashek as the dude and once again way too old (laughs) (laughs) uh all right todd uh todd give us your uh your spanish dude and your english dude all right my spanish (laughs) dude is definitely benicio del toro yes i knew it yeah that's a good call (laughs) but uh my american version was pretty obvious uh unless i was gonna pick uh which would be a copycat thing Having a uh, Joaquin Phoenix do it, I had Josh Brolin. I, I think I think he has uh, he could he totally has that like sort of laid back, like I don't give a sh- huh. sort of uh, feeling to him, and uh, I, I think he would he would really slide into the dude's role nicely. Uh, I would also have to agree because my pick is Josh Brolin as well. Uh, that was wow. the one that once I once I saw his name on on some of the lists I was looking through. I was like, oh well, yeah, Josh Brolin. That that has to be it. I mean, there's really there's really no other choice at that point. So uh, yes, Josh Brolin would also would also be my dude. All I think right. when when he was in Sicario, he wore the same sandals as this dude did. So we've already started that. <laughs> it's very possible. Um, all right, moving on now to our next character, which is uh, the uh, trusty sidekick of the dude, uh, Walter Sobchak, uh, originally played, once again, brilliantly and irreplaceably by John Goodman, um, as no one else could play it. 
Zach, who would be uh, who would be your Walter? So this is again where where the uh, imp- the importance of the writer director plays. I have the Softy brothers and Jim Jarmusch working together, and I think they saw Get Out and they were blown away by Lil Rel Howery, and I think he would make an excellent Walter. Now I think he's got the one-liners. I think he's got the attitude. I think he's got the profanity and the the volume, and uh, I would love to see what he brings to the role. Okay. By the way, Lil Rel Howery, if you're not familiar, is. Uh, is the role of Rod, the TSA agent, in Get Out. Unfairly snubbed of an Oscar nomination. Yes. I agree. We, we, we've discussed that. <laughs> um, Todd, who, who, are, who is your, uh, your Spanish Walter and your English Walter? <laughs> well, my Spanish Walter is uh, Oscar nominee Demian Bashir, because I, I feel like he's <laughs> yes. sort of played that, that sort of angry role better life. savages. <laughs> but my American Walter, like, I was actually... Uh, s- thinking about my Shane Black version, which would definitely uh, include Russell Crowe as uh, as Walter, but instead I have Pamela Adlon directing, so it's going to be Louis C.K. And oh, oh I, no. Yeah. just <laughs> We're going down that direction? Oh, boy. I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I, I think I, I could actually see it happening, so that's my, that's my choice. I, 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 li- I really like that, that idea. All right, well, for me... Uh, keeping in mind that Seth and Evan are directing it, there was really no other choice for Walter but oh, Danny McBride. Um, oh yeah, he yeah. he yeah. is he is a perfect. He might be a little young, um, but outside of that, he would be perfect as as Walter. I mean, he just kind of already has that that brashness to him. Um, Put together his <laughs> Tropic Thunder and. Uh, Eastbound and Down characters, and he pretty much is Walter. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, either Danny McBride, or you could you could try and pull, put Seth Rogen in that role, but Danny McBride is definitely the better choice. Um, okay. Uh, I, I, we are off to a great start here. Uh, moving on to uh, Donnie, uh, who was obviously out of his element for the majority of this movie. Um, Donnie Karabatsos, uh, played by Steve Buscemi. Zach, who would be your Donnie? This was by far the hardest role to cast because Donnie has so little lines in the movie yet plays such a prominent role. And again, I, it's hard to imagine anyone but Steve Buscemi playing it. So you're looking for someone who's quirky, uh, who maybe has an attitude issue, um, who's certainly out of his element. I think this is ripe for a career comeback role. And the actor who I think has been unfairly blacklisted out of Hollywood for 20 years, who's going to return in, in uh, prodigal style to re- replay the role of Donnie, is none other than Rob Schneider. I think Rob Schneider... Uh, <laughs> at uh, 55 years old or however old he is could make a great Donnie I'd love to see it he needs to be back someone hire him <laughs> I agree he needs to be back right. yes alright Todd uh, who, who do you have as your as your Donnie's okay well this is partially why I quit doing my Spanish version because it was my <laughs> knowledge of uh, younger Spanish actors especially is not very uh, great so uh, my Donnie was Daniel Brule but in my American version, <laughs> uh, Spanish, German, you know. <laughs> well, he is Spanish. Is he? He, he, was, he? He's he's Spanish and German. Okay. Well, okay. My Donnie in the American version is uh, Vincent Carthizer, 
who is uh, Pete Campbell in Mad Men, and I feel like he really has that has that feel of someone who's sort of bullied by the the people around him, and you know, like like Zach said, has an attitude problem, and I, I feel like he would do a good job at sort of like pitching in but fading to the background at the same time. All right, uh, for me. My pick for uh, for Donnie is kind of in a similar a similar vein there. Uh, my pick for Donnie is Jim Parsons. Uh, kind of a similar feel uh, to uh, to Todd's pick. Uh, just that uh, that kind of whimsical, quiet uh, presence uh, in every scene there. That kind of doesn't know what's going on, but is right in the middle of everything at the same time. Uh, completely out of his element in everything. Okay. Next, uh, next character is Maud Lebowski, the uh, the potential heir to the Lebowski fortune, um, who gave the Lebowski the rug that really tied the room together. Um, originally played by Julianne Moore, Zach, who would be your Maud Lebowski? Okay, so I sort of have a confession to make. I don't really remember the Big Lebowski past, like, the 50-minute mark. So the only thing I remember about Maude is the scene where she's, like, painting um, <laughs> nude from, like, a string from above. So that, I don't really know why she plays such a prominent role in the movie. I'm looking it up on Wikipedia, and it does seem like she has a bigger role later in the film. But uh, I was going to say Jennifer Jason Lee as Maude, because I can only think of maybe two actresses that would hang from a string nude while painting, and Jennifer Jason Lee was one, and uh, Isabel Huppert was the other. But as Michael Cimino knows, she doesn't speak English well enough for people to believe it. So I'm going JJL. All right, all right. Todd. Mod. Your cast is way too old. <laughs> Again. Uh, so my Spanish version is M- Manuela Velasco, who is the main character in uh, Record. I, and I, I feel like she R-E-C. actually acts... Yeah. Uh, she acts a lot like uh, Julianne Moore. But my in my American version is Amber Tamblin. And... I don't know. I, I, I feel like uh, it's a role that she actually would be playing, and I, I feel like that's not infinite budget casting or anything like that. Yeah, that, that's that's not a that's not a bad choice. Um, I thought about that one, but I like mine better. Um, when I think of Maude, I think of this uh, this strong, powerful, independent woman that um, is very intelligent, yet kind of out there at the same time. And uh, my choice for that is Julia Stiles. Uh, I think she would be really good at that at that idea of this strong, intelligent, independent, completely insane person. Uh, I think uh, I could really see her in that role and really getting into it. Lumen. Lumen, yes. All right. Uh, last actor that we're going to uh, do all together, and then we have some other ones that we can throw out there if we want. Uh, the Stranger. Uh, originally played by Sam Elliott... Uh, the kind of the narrator of our story, uh, Zach. Who would be your stranger? Well, uh, the problem is the the only actor who would really make an adequate stranger just recently died, and that's Harry Dean Stanton. So, would it be possible to piece together clips from performances of Harry Dean Stanton and make that the narration for the film, like The Stranger? Sure. Okay, so I'm going to say archival Harry Dean Stanton roles. All right. So Zach's going with the hologram. What about you, Todd? Yeah. All right. Well, this is one of the reasons why I chose the Spanish version because uh, the the perfect actor in both of my lists is uh, Danny Trejo. 
<laughs> I could see that. Absolutely. He's just sitting in a bar, hearing the hearing the story, relaying the story. That is Danny Trejo. <laughs> uh, my stranger. I mean, you have to bring it full circle. My stranger has to be Jeff Bridges, uh, coming uh, back and telling the story of the of the new dude. Um, it, it, nothing else would make sense. Yeah, that well, that would trip people like out though. I think people would watch it and. Uh, that's too much for some people. I think that the electroshock would be too much to handle. <laughs> be very confusing. It, it, it potentially. I mean, it's like the last you know hour of inherent vice. I think it's just too much for people. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, now, do uh, I know Todd? You've got a few other uh, characters that you uh, that you have some castings for. Uh, you want to share? Uh, yeah. So. In my Spanish version, another reason why I wanted to do that was because I thought that Lin-Manuel Miranda was the perfect Jesus. Oh, and yes. <laughs> That's good. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I was also, uh, I also like Gail Garcia Bernal as Uli, which is a Peter Stormare character. I, thought, I think that'd be a really bizarre thing to see. And I also cast Michael Pena as Brandt, Selena Gomez as Bunny, and uh, because it's Almodovar, I have uh, Carmen Mara playing the uh, Ben Gazzara part as Jackie. <laughs> but in the American version, uh, for Bunny, I went with Juno Temple because that it, I that there's no other choice you could possibly have for Bunny than Juno Temple. And uh, for Brandt, I have... I think ideally it would be like seven or eight years ago, Patrick Fugit. So I went the next best thing: Young William Miller, Michael Angarano. <laughs> yes. yes, every movie has to have Young William Miller in it. <laughs> oh, and 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 uh, for the actual Jeff, Jeffrey Lebowski, I went with Russ Tamlin since uh, that's Ma, uh, Maud's father. Oh, I there didn't you know go. that. There you go. Okay, so for the uh, additional roles, I went with uh, Shia LaBeouf as Jesus. Uh, I did actually think of another character that could play Bunny Todd, and that character is, or that actress is Bria Vanate. I think she needs another role. She could kill it as Bunny. I could totally okay. see it. Um, for Brandt, I, I like it to sort of be a, a gender non-conforming role, so I thought uh, Lena Dunham would make a great Brandt. And then as the le real Lebowski, uh, Stephen Root, who played uh, the oh, old guy yes. in Get Out. Yeah, I mean, that's all that I was thinking watching Get Out was old Lebowski, so there you go. I like that. I like, I like that. that. Yeah, it's a good one. I, I I didn't have a good one for Jeff Lebowski, so I'm gonna go with Stephen Root. I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with go. yours. Um, uh, my uh, my bunny that I came up with was uh, Zoe Kazan from uh, who played uh, Emily in The Big Sick. I thought she'd be a good bunny, and then uh, my Jesus is Adrian Brody. Um, mm, good one. Because I, I think one of the interesting things about Jesus is it's played by John Turturro, this Italian man playing a Mexican. So let's find someone that's not Mexican to try and pull this off. And Adrian Brody has that that tall lankiness that um, can come across as creepiness. So uh, that's who I'm going with uh, for. But can for he dance? Um, well, uh, can Jesus dance? <laughs> I don't know, he looked pretty slick. That's true, he did, he did. Um, and for Brandt, I mean, it, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, I really couldn't come up with anyone uh, anyone that I really liked to replace 
replace that role. It's it's such a small role, but still, it's so it's so uh, Phil Hoffman. Maybe that's something where where like uh, Seth Rogen would jump into the cast there or something like that. Or maybe Sam Rockwell would do it, you know, for his old friend. You know, oh, there we fill go. the role admirably. Yeah. There we go. Oh no, I have a I have a good I have a good brand. My brand would be uh, Toby Jones. He's still way too old. He, he's like, he is. He is too like old. thirty years too old. Yeah, but he that role doesn't. It doesn't matter how old that guy is. I mean, he's just the servant. He's so like an ev- intern almost. I I don't know. You got to have him be like thirty tops. But then everyone would say that Toby Jones was better in this role than Philip Seymour Hoffman, like they did in Capote. For the few people that saw the <laughs> Toby Jones uh, review, there it is. <laughs> Uh, what was that infamous? Was that what it was infamous? Called? Was what it was called. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Uh, the if you haven't seen the Big Lebowski 20th anniversary of it, it is one of the uh, one of the stranger 90s comedies, but definitely uh, definitely worth a watch if you're in for some uh, some complete absurdity. Um, How is watching uh, Phoenix not in any of our casts? He needs to be in this remake too. That's what I said. He he like he was. He was like a, a total dude, and that would have been like almost cheating because he pretty much played that when he was in Inherent Vice. So I chose his co-star, Josh Brolin. There you go. There you go. Okay, moving on from our recasting, uh, it is now time for this week's version of Power Rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. I'm kind of nervous now. Power Rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. For uh, power rankings this uh, this week, I was the winner of our uh, of our Vegas movies predictions for Adam's list. So I got to pick our uh, our uh, category for this week. And looking at uh, what was coming out this week, we have a Wrinkle in Time opening up this weekend. So in honor of a Wrinkle in Time. Um, and in honor of a couple of us uh, uh, being teachers of uh, today's youth, uh, our category for Power Rankings is the best movies adapted from children's books. So this could be a children's book, this could be a YA novel, young adult novel, this could be um, something that is like standard reading for a middle school or high school English class, but something that is adapted, that is most known for being read by young people. That's what we're going for here. Uh, I think these could be some really interesting lists as we could have taken them several different directions. Um, So, let's get High school, that means that you could use like Shakespeare. I didn't even think about that. I thought, I was thinking younger than that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Shakespeare's kind of cheating though. Does anyone actually read Shakespeare? in high school. I mean, isn't everyone just go on Wikipedia now? That's true. That's true. That's what I would have done. Not or, that I'm telling students to do that. <laughs> <laughs> when, when we were in school, it was always the, what, the Cliff Notes? Wasn't that it? Yeah. Do they even Spark have Cliff Notes anymore? Spark Notes? Do those exist anymore? I don't think they need to. Yeah, I don't think they need to either. Anyways, I'll go ahead and get started on this one. Uh, so, uh, top five uh, children's book adaptations. My number five is uh, the one children's book adaptation done by Martin Scorsese, and that is Hugo, uh, the uh, story of uh, of a young orphan boy who uh, who discovers uh, film and cinema uh, in uh, um, in Paris. Uh, it is uh, it, it's a an, an amazing film, visually stunning, uh, great story, 
Um, I really enjoyed this, uh, this one. Um, and uh, I, I know I have some students that have really enjoyed the book as well. So Hugo is my number five. Uh, Todd, what is your number five? A uh, good choice, Terry. That might be on my list later. Uh, my number five is uh, a movie that's definitely, I guess you'd call it a guilty pleasure. It's uh, The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, which is a young adult novel by Anne Brasheris. And uh, it's about a group of four girlfriends who pass along a pair of magic jeans to each other that, that fit each <coughs> other as they're embarking on uh, their journeys into adulthood. And it's sort of a weepy uh, chick flick, but it's I, I actually really enjoy it. It's, it's got five uh, like really good star-making performances by these actresses. It's rewarding and warm-hearted, and it's really hard to not have a tear in some form at the end of the movie. Uh, the second one's pretty good, too, but the first one is uh, definitely worthy of this list. It's my number five. All right. Zach, how about you? All right, well, uh, I interpreted this list pretty literally. I thought it was really solely based on children's books. Uh, so um, my number five starts with Jumanji from 1995, and I realize that there's been a sequel released to Jumanji, and somehow I haven't seen it yet. Maybe it's because I'm a little reluctant to see it. I'm a little skeptical that they could ever actually get better than the original Jumanji. But this was based on Chris Van Alsberg's book and directed by Joe Johnson, starring Robin Williams, Bonnie Hunt, and a young Kirsten Dunst, and uh, it's a really fabulous movie um, about uh, this crazy game that invades this town in New Hampshire, and uh, you know, I think it gets really um, unfairly criticized because the special effects are so bad in it, but if you take the story and the Robin Williams parts of it and somehow add like good CGI, you actually get a really good movie. So unabashedly, I grew up with this movie. I really enjoy it. And uh, I think it holds up pretty well, minus the special effects. But just, you know, use your imagination because that's what you got to do with kids' books anyway, right? So Jumanji, my number five. Good choice. Good choice. Uh, number four for me uh, is looking at... Uh, possibly the most successful franchise of the last, oh, 15, 20 years or so. Um, I had to pick one of the nine films to, uh, to talk about, so I picked the first one. Number four on my list is Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Uh, the J.K. Rowling series uh, is one of the most successful YA series of all time, um, and the movies definitely have... Uh, have uh, captured the spirit of the books in a wonderful way. Um, uh, I I think it, they're they're great movies that are uh, so much fun to watch over and over again. Uh, the world of Harry Potter is so rich. Um, uh, I love how they're now expanding it into the Fantastic Beasts series. I can't wait to see where that continues to go. Um, a huge Harry Potter fan, so number four on my list: Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. All right. Uh... I think you chose the wrong movie. My favorite's Goblet of Fire, but uh, that's a good one too. Series definitely has to be mentioned. Um, my number four is uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, the Wes Anderson movie from 2009, based on the Roald Dahl children's book. Uh, it's about uh, a fox who raids farms and wreaks havoc, and sort of has to protect his family eventually when the farmers sort of retaliate against him. I think it's a really funny movie, and uh, it definitely fits into the Wes Anderson mold. Uh, the voice work is spot on by George Clooney and Meryl Streep, among others, and it's full of in-jokes and, and humor that pretty much anyone can appreciate, and 
it might be Anderson's best movie, which is why Isle of Dogs is so hotly anticipated coming out um, shortly. Uh, I don't know. Seeing Wes Anderson adapt someone else's material is interesting in itself, and the movie actually turned out to be really, really good. And so Fantastic Mr. Fox comes in at number four. All right. Well, my number four pick is also adapted from a Roald Dahl uh, book, but I think it's one that gets unfairly overlooked, and that is from 1996, Matilda, directed by Danny DeVito, also starring Danny DeVito, Mara Wilson, Rhea Perlman, and M. Beth Davids. Um, really just absolutely charming movie about uh, a, a prodigal little girl who is a, a, not only a genius, but is able to use... Uh, so much of her brain that she's actually able to conjure up these sort of magical, mystical powers and make things move on their own. Um, and she lives in this, like, borderline abusive environment with parents that don't care about her and a evil, maniacal headmistress at the school. And, uh, you know, it sounds very kind of childish and juvenile, but the movie is really charming, mostly in part due to, mostly due to the, the performance by Mara Wilson, who was one of the great kid actresses of the 1990s. And uh, Danny DeVito has made some really, actually, under, underrated work. And uh, this is definitely one of the best uh, kid adaptations. I think even kids today would, would like it, and they would be moved by it, uh, and it's uh, full of great performances. Pam Ferris, just awesome as Miss Trunchbull. All right, all right. Uh, number three on my list is uh, is based on possibly my favorite book of all time. I uh, I taught this book for uh, for quite some time to uh, to my middle schoolers, um, and the movie is not very much like the book, but I still love the movie, and that is 2002's The Count of Monte Cristo, uh, based on the classic Alexander Dumas book. Um, it, it, it stars Jim Caviezel, Guy Pearce, Richard Harris, Louis Guzman, um, Superman himself, Henry Cavill, and possibly his first role um, as, a, as a young uh, Albert. Uh, the, it's, a, it's a great story, such a rich story in the, in the novel. But like I said, this movie is nothing like the book. Uh, but I love the movie for what it is as well. It's, uh, it's full of action. Uh, it's uh, full of suspense. It's uh, it captures enough of the story to keep you interested, and adds enough action to to make it uh, constantly entertaining. So uh, number three on my list, uh, it's kind of a guilty pleasure of mine, uh, The Count of Monte Cristo. Okay, but now we're getting into this debate about is that really a kids book? I mean, I understand that kids would read it in middle school or high school, but is this a book that's generated for a younger audience? See, it's like it's like the snow thing, man. It's just too debatable. I, I, I too know. Controversial. I know. It, it's it, it and that it kind of is left up to interpretation there. So I'm, I'm going with it. I'm going with it. Alexandre dumbass. <laughs> dumbass. You'd like that one. It's about a prison break. Got to file that in educational too, huh? <laughs> All right. My number three is a young adult novel adaptation by Tim Tharp that became an R-rated movie, as Zach doesn't think exists, and that is The Spectacular Now. Uh, it stars, stars Miles Teller as an alcoholic high school kid who unexpectedly sort of has his life altered when he meets a good girl, which is played by uh, Shailene Woodley in her best performance ever. The movie is definitely nostalgic in a way, but it also hits home, and Ponce, James Ponsold's the director, and he has a way with, like, directing movies about alcoholics. He had Off the Black, which starred Nick Nolte as an alcoholic um, uh, referee or umpire, and uh, and then Smashed, which was a really good relationship movie with uh, 
Mary Elizabeth Winstead and Aaron Paul. And then he had this one, which was a, a, about younger people, and uh, it's it's roles like these for Miles Teller that make it a joke that he has not had an Oscar nomination yet. Like he is outstanding in this movie, and uh, he makes us root for his like oh. character and actually earns our empathy when the movie shifts from comedy to drama. It's a it's a movie that I really like and uh, definitely deserves a spot on this list. And it is, I mean, and and Zach, it is an R-rated young adult novel adaptation. Oh yeah, I, I remember. I remember the R rating was for some nudity, I believe, and certainly some depictions of teen alcoholism. Very edgy stuff. <laughs> um, Not violence. Oh, man. Yeah, okay. All right, well, uh, my number three is based on a uh, young adult novel by an author named Wendelin von Draunen, and that is Flipped from 2010, directed by Rob Reiner. Um, this is, again, one of the more woefully underrated, underappreciated films of this decade. Um, and it takes place in the 1950, in the late 1950s in this kind of typical sort of suburban neighborhood. And it tells the story of two kids, Bryce and Julie, as they sort of go into puberty and they begin out sort of hating each other and despising each other, but then they sort of gradually start liking each other, but then there's complications that sort of naturally arise. And what's sort of cool narratively about this film is that uh, it's told from different perspectives. So you you hear Bryce's side of the narrative and you see his sort of point of view. And then in the next scene, it's Julie's depiction of events, which are understandably a little bit different. So it does sort of a Pulp Fiction type thing there. Um, really charming film. Uh, if you look at the poster and you watch the preview, you think it's really saturine, very much made-for-TV, Hallmark Channel type stuff, but I actually think the movie's pretty audacious, and it has a lot of interesting things to say about coming of age, and also about sort of morality and ethics in a way. Um, we see some great supporting performances by Anthony Edwards, Penelope Ann Miller, and Aidan Quinn and Rebecca De Mornay as the as the parents, who are very colorful, interesting supporting roles in in their own right. So uh, it's definitely a movie that was for the family audience, which may explain why it it was a box office bomb. But uh, Rob Reiner is a great director. He's made many of some of the some of the best films of the last thirty years, and this belongs in the top of his list. So, flipped my number three. I still need to see that one. I wanted to see it, but I never got a chance to. Oh, uh, you're you're missing out, Todd. Have you seen it? <clears throat> I saw it, and I don't really remember much about it. Well, that's disappointing. I get that mixed up with the one that stars like uh, Dennis Hopper's son. What's that movie? As it's another one-word title. You remember that Henry Hopper? What movie is that? It's another like. I don't know. I feel like it has a similar, like poster even. Okay. Henry Hopper? That sounds made up. Restless. <laughs> Restless. Restless. Directed by Gus Van Sant. Oh, right? wow. Well, there you go. Gus Van Sant with Mia Vyaskoska. And it or, uh, and it does have a similar poster to Flipped, so I'll give you that. But I'm sure it's not as good. I get those mixed up, so I honestly... I think I, think I gave them both like two and a half stars, honestly. Henry <laughs> Hopper doesn't even have his own Wikipedia page. That's how well known he is. He's been in seven movies. All right, number two on my list is uh, is based on a classic novel that uh, I think everyone reads at some point in uh, in high school or middle school, um, and and uh, this is 1962's *To Kill a Mockingbird*, uh, based on Harper Lee's uh, novel of the same title. Uh, this is starring Gregory Peck as uh, Atticus Finch. 
um, as he uh, works as a lawyer uh, trying to help out a, uh, a uh, black man uh, falsely accused of a crime. Um, it is an amazing story uh, told from the, uh, from the point of view of his daughter, Scout. Um, I, I love the story. I love uh, the characters. I love one of the characters so much. Our, our son's name is Atticus uh, because of Atticus Finch. Um, it is a, it's a great story. Also uh, has uh, one of the first uh, film appearances by Robert Duvall as, Blue, as Boo Radley. Pops up at the very end of the film. Um, I always thought 1962 was one of the more interesting uh, Oscar discussions between To Kill a Mockingbird and Lawrence of Arabia, and I always thought the, the Academy got it right. Um, Lawrence of Arabia is a better film, but I think Gregory Peck had a better performance than Peter O'Toole, and so he deserved to win Best Actor that year. Um, but uh, great movie, great book, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, my number two. All right, great choice. Uh, my number two is a movie that's already been mentioned. It's Hugo. The Martin Scorsese Best Picture nominee from 2011, and I I I really liked this movie when it came out. It made my top ten of the year. I I think it was some of the most efficient uses of CGI in a big budget movie. But it's also like a, a family film and has that stuff about like film preservation and everything, and it may, really makes it so there's something for everybody in the movie. Definitely a kids movie, but definitely a, a full widely appealing movie at the same time. And it's it's a wonder to watch. I I love all the performances and I, lo I love all the visuals and it may be indulgent to an extent, but uh, it's imagination and visuals make it just something else. That's my number two, Hugo. Okay, number two on my list is uh, from 1995, and I think the period of 1993 to 1996 was just the best period for movies anyway, but but particularly some really awesome movies for families and, and kids. Um, and my number two film is Babe by Chris Noonan um, and produced by George Miller of Mad Max fame. And uh, this is the story of a, uh, a, a shy young pig as he... Uh, learns the ropes on Hoggett, Farmer Hoggett's farm, and he meets and has communication with other animals, and he gradually discovers that he's quite adept at communicating with uh, both sheep and dogs and uh, rats and chickens and cats and other animals on the farm. Uh, it's a really lovely film to watch, great cinematography. Uh, the it's you know eighty percent of the film is just uh, animals talking to each other, but it's pre it's, it's sort of in its like infancy for CGI, so it's not done in an over the top way. Um, it was a film that was so charming that it was nominated for Best Picture in 1995. I think it holds up really well. The sequel's really good too, and uh, the last scene, the last few scenes uh, may bring a tear to my eye sometimes. So uh, it's a really great film for the whole family, um, but it has enough sort of hidden humor in it and sort of audacity underneath the surface to I think please adults too. So, Babe is my number two book or novel or bleh, film based off a kids book. All right. That's a great choice. I love I love that movie. Uh, it didn't make my list, but I, I, I do love that movie. Uh, number one on my list is a film that, uh, that I always champion as one of the greatest films of all time, uh, simply for its timelessness, um, its, uh, its amazing uh, uh, portrayal of good versus evil, and just uh, kind of its, its dreamlike setting, and that is The Wizard of Oz from 1939, uh, based on the L. Frank Baum book, uh, uh, starring Judy Garland as uh, Dorothy, 
as she travels to this wonderful, uh, magical uh, land of Oz and tries to find her way home. It's, it's one of those movies that um, you can appreciate on so many different levels. You can appreciate it as a kid. Uh, you can appreciate it as an adult. Um, I, 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 it's, a, it's a classic, and it's, it's um, I think, a movie that, uh, that could be considered pretty close to perfect. I love The Wizard of Oz. It's my number one children's book adaptation. Great choice. That I uh, just missed my list. But when you gave me the category, I knew exactly what my number one was going to be. It was my favorite book as a child and uh, my favorite in the category for sure. And that is Spike Jones's Where the Wild Things Are, directed or uh, based on the children's book by Maurice Sendak. It's about a young boy named Max who runs away from home and goes to this island that he made in his imagination that feature these creatures that think he's their king. And it's a movie that I was terrified to see on the big screen because I thought they would screw it up because I loved the book so much when I was a child. But Spike Jones gets everything right. Like, his imagination is beyond any other director that I think is working today. He doesn't make enough movies. The things look fantastic. James Gandolfini, I think, is almost undebatably gives the greatest voice performance in the history of movies. And the emotional impact is huge. The music's fantastic. And Max Records absolutely embodies his uh the main character it is almost perfect movie and i almost tear up every time i see it uh, where the wild things are is the definite number one in this category whatever happened to max records he played like a serial killer in a movie a couple of years ago that i didn't see was henry hopper in it no i don't <laughs> think so that wasn't one of the seven movies he was in <laughs> <laughs> all right zach you're number one Okay, my number one film is, uh, again, from that fabled uh, great era of, of movie making when I was growing up, 1993 to 1996. And this was, I believe, maybe the second or third movie I ever saw in a theater, and it always stuck with me. And that is The Secret Garden from 1993. Um, this was in an era when there were serious filmmakers that actually made high-quality kids' films that weren't always just for kids. Uh, this was in an era when children's movies didn't have to have CGI and explosions and animations in them. And The Secret Garden is a very sobering, serious look at the life of this young girl, Mary, who grows up in India, but her parents are killed, and so she's sent to live in this very um, gloomy manor uh, where her uncle lives, uh, Lord Craven. And at this mansion, she really, um, she meets this boy who is sort of the groundskeeper, and they sort of forge a friendship, but she's really pretentious, you know? I mean, that's one of the things I love about the movie, is that she's a really unlikable little girl. She's really stuffy and she sort of gives everyone the orders. And then she meets her cousin who's this bedridden kid named Colin who thinks that he's allergic to the light. And they're both really annoying kids. But uh, what I like about the movie is that they both have a sort of moral development and you grow along with them and then you discover this garden that exists on the grounds of the of the mansion. And uh, it's directed by Agnieszka Holland, uh, the great European director, great Polish director. And there's a absolutely beautiful. I think it's one of the most beautifully shot films I've ever seen. I mean, the interiors just look gorgeous. You compare this film to like Barry Lyndon. I mean, it stands right up there. It's absolutely beautifully lit and photographed, and the story is really riveting and moving, and um, it's probably a movie that today adults would like more than more than kids, because like I said, there's no CGI or explosions in it, but for, for intelligent, you know, thoughtful kids, it's, it's beautiful filmmaking, and it had a profound impact on me when I first saw it. Probably one of the main reasons I love movies so much was seeing that movie. 
All right, so let's, uh, let's recap our top five, uh, then we'll look at some honorable mentions. So for me, my top five, uh, number five is Hugo, number four, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, number three, The Count of Monte Cristo, number two, To Kill a Mockingbird, and number one, The Wizard of Oz. Todd. I, number five, The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, number four, Fantastic Mr. Fox, number three, The Spectacular Now, number two, Hugo, and number one, Where the Wild Things Are. All right, and my number five was Jumanji, number four was Matilda, number three was Flipped, number two is Babe, and number one is The Secret Garden, not the 1949 version, but the 1993 version. All right, uh, I have a few honorable mentions, uh, to throw out there, uh, Where the Wild Things Are just missed my list. It was on my honorable mentions. Um, another one where I will say the book is ten times better than the movie, but the movie is still entertaining, uh, The Outsiders, uh, simply for how many uh, how many young stars you see in that movie. I mean, Patrick Swayze, Rob Lowe, Emilio Estevez, Tom Cruise, Diane Lane, um, uh, Ralph Macchio. There's uh, so many... Uh, uh, young stars that pop up in that movie. And uh, the last honorable mention, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Um, the original, not not the uh, the Johnny Depp abomination. Um, you, uh, you gotta love that movie. And that's another Roald Dahl book, too. So uh, uh, we could have just made a list of Roald Dahl adaptations, it sounds like. Uh, True. Alright, my honorable mentions, I have uh, The Wizard of Oz and uh, the 1967 version of The Jungle Book and... Uh, the Hunger Games Catching Fire. All right, uh, my honorable mentions were The Black Stallion, directed by Carol Ballard, the 1979 version with Mickey Rooney. Great movie. Bridge to Terabithia, underrated Disney movie from the mid-2000s. The Hunger Games, I'm surprised no one mentioned The Hunger Games. I think, you know, it's certainly a YA uh, genre. Uh, Little Women. And finally, um, this film would have been in my top five, but it's been such a long time since I saw it that I, I don't confidently feel like I could discuss it adequately, but that is Alfonso Cuaron's A Little Princess, which, like A Secret Garden, was a great mid-90s movie featuring a, a young girl protagonist and was absolutely beautifully shot. I mean, there's no reason this should be relegated to a kid's film. It, it's a beautiful work of art, so it should have been on my list, but I don't remember it well enough. That is a good movie. I, I watched that maybe like a year ago for the first time. I really liked that. All right, so now let's uh, let's get into our competition here. So uh, our our friend and almost sideways compatriot Adam Daly has sent us his top five list, and we are going to try and predict what is uh, going to pop up on that list. Now, um, I will go ahead and start. Uh, this was a hard list to come up with because um, just like for us, we could we took it some very different ways. He could easily take this in a couple different ways. So. Um, my top five, uh, number one is Return of the King, uh, Lord of the Rings Return of the King. Number two, uh, Harry Potter, I'm going to go Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Uh, number three, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Number four, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And number five, Mary Poppins. All right, uh, my list, I have, uh, his number one is The Princess Bride. Number Ooh. two, The Wizard of Oz. Number three, uh, the 2016 The Jungle Book. Number four, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part Two, And number five, Hugo. Yeah, it was either going to be the first Harry Potter or the last Harry Potter. 
All right. Uh, and I'm going to remind the audience, I've never met Adam in person, so I deserve a handicap. But <laughs> number one is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Number two is Jumanji. Number three is Holes. Number four is The Hunger Games. And number five is Zathura. Uh, holes, that's a good one to, to put on the list. I was trying to get uh, Indian in the Cupboard in there somewhere for on uh, Adam's list, but... Uh... I, uh, and Sword in the Stone, Sword something like that. Sword in the Stone, yeah, there we go. Some of those good old, good old classic ones. All right, so here is the unveiling of Adam's list. He said it was a very tough list, um, but here are his honorable mentions. His honorable mentions are Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, was the one that mm. made the list. Uh, Howl's Moving Castle. It's uh, a book? Yeah. Apparently, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the original Alice in Wonderland, and Perks of Being a Wallflower. That was his. Uh, that was his yeah, honorable mention. One. Okay, here's his top five. Number five, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, which is is based on the Odyssey, by Homer. Right. So such a children's book. Okay. Uh, number four, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Number three, the original Charlotte's Web. Number two, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? And number one, The Wizard of Oz. So I got one. I got one as well. <laughs> I got one. <laughs> I, ha- I had Wizard of Oz number two. I, I, had, I had Willy Wonka number four, and he had it number four. So I got that going for me. So Zach, what did you have? I had Willy Wonka as his number one. You had Willy Wonka as his number one. I think um, I think Todd wins this simply because his one is higher up on the list and closer to where it's supposed to be. I I can live with that. Yeah. So Todd right. Todd has declared the winner. Todd, you were saying it's been a while since you've won this thing. Yeah. I mean, I think it's been like four or five, like a couple months. <laughs> I should get to pick a category. You do, you do. All right. Can it be the top five Henry Hopper films? How about the top seven? <laughs> We'd have to. We have to find the uh, China Test Girls. Way to watch that. Maybe the library has it. I don't know. That sounds like a Harmony Kareen film. That's what I'm gonna make you watch if uh, if I if I win Oscar trivia. <laughs> oh, the gauntlet's been thrown. <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of that, let's hop into Oscar trivia. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. He's going to beat me every time. Oscar trivia. So, uh, last time on Oscar trivia, honestly, I don't even remember who won. Who won that one? I did. Yeah, you did. Won. Yeah, you, you did. You had to watch the film. Too. Yeah, 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 that's right. And you gave, you gave Todd like half of his answers, too, and you still won. But I got Silkwood um, props. You did yeah, get Silkwood. Good for you. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, the, the decision was made that I had to watch a movie and I had to watch Terms of Endearment the 1983 Best Picture winner which Zach has been trying to get me to watch for a long time uh, I watched this movie last night um, and I, uh, I really enjoyed it it was a very good movie uh, I don't think it's, it's like top 10 of all time worthy like Zach says it is um, top 20. Top, top 20, 20. Top 20. At one point, it was your number one, wasn't it? It was. It was my number one for a while in my life, but that was before I met you. Okay. <laughs> and then you, you um, changed everything. Yeah, I changed yeah. everything. You changed everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but uh, but yeah, no, it's a it's a it's an amazing movie. Uh, Shirley MacLaine and um, and Deborah Winger and Jack Nicholson, John Lithgow, they all give incredible performances. Uh, Jeff Daniels uh, gives an amazing performance as well. Um, I think it's it's very much an '80s film in some in some aspects, and uh, it, at moments it's a little corny, but at moments also the dialogue is amazing. Uh, I think uh, I, I think watching this this kind of helped Jack Nicholson become like the stereotype Jack Nicholson that he is today, with some of the lines that he gets to say in in that movie of uh, of uh, I'd rather put needles in my eyes. <laughs> It, it 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 kind of you ladies es- you you like lunch. <laughs> it established Jack Nicholson as who he is today, um, and honestly, I think um, I think he uh, basically just played an older version of this character in as good as it gets, and uh, and um, he won an Oscar for both of them. So, uh, and it's not too far removed from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest either. I mean, no, let's be it's honest. not. It's not. Uh, I was a little confused at times by how much uh, it just jumps in time without any uh, without any warning at all, where it's just one scene and then you cut to another scene and all of a sudden the the baby she had just gotten pregnant with is five years old. Um, I think it, it's it's kind of uh, it takes a little time to get used to on that. Um, so. Because of that, and because of some of the some of the corniness, I'm giving it three and a half stars. But again, it's a it's a really good movie. Um, it's a it's it was an, an entertaining movie for sure, um, and a really heartfelt film. That's uh that's definitely worth seeing. Yeah, I mean, well, I'm glad you saw it. It only took you know eleven and a half years, but uh, <laughs> you finally got it. And uh, yeah, I think I have it as my number eighteen film of all time. I grew up with it. I loved it. I actually, I mean, see, that was the kind of book I was reading in like middle school. I wasn't reading freaking like Wizard of Oz. Interestingly enough, the Garrett Breedlove character does not appear in the book at all. It was uh, a complete, um, uh, you know, amalgamation of James L. Brooks's screenplay. So. Yeah, Danny DeVito, he was great. <laughs> Yes, he Danny just, DeVito and his He just was, was kind awesome. of around everywhere. My favorite part is I, I was watching it and there's the scene where the where the kids are swimming and uh and when Jack Nicholson come shows up in Nebraska at the hospital and he comes walking down the stairs. And if you notice in the background when it shows Shirley MacLaine watching him, Danny DeVito's character is in the background t- uh toweling off the kids. Well, he he worships Aurora. You yeah. Know? I mean, he's he's uh, you know he he will travel anywhere. He's also at the funeral. Oh, spoiler alert! But you know he's uh, he's a great adherent <laughs> of Aurora. He's one of the suitors for we, sure. We were uh, we we were uh, referring to them as her pets. Yes, they were definitely her pets. Um, I see uh, that there's a remake happening. Lee Daniels is directing it. Yes. And Oprah is playing Oprah. Aurora. Who's playing Emma? Have they said yet? Uh, no, there was not listed. I Tiffany find it, Haddish. I find it Come interesting oh, that man. Every, yes, every that has movie, to be a thing. Every other movie I've seen based on a Larry McMurtry novel is like a western. So this one is definitely like a an exception in that case. It's really funny you mentioned that, Todd, because when I was in middle school, I read almost all of Larry McMurtry's books, including the sequels to Terms of Endearment and The Last Picture Show. And a great author, by the way, Last Picture Show, not a western. True. But, I mean, te- Texas, yeah. West Texas. I don't know. Kind of. Kind no, of. Maybe a little bit. Yeah. All right. Well, let's see what's going to happen uh, on this uh, 
round of Oscar trivia. Uh, so I pick a category, uh, and uh, they, Todd and Zach, go back and forth. Um, uh, this is not a, a, a year this time. I've picked a specific category. And they're going to go back and forth, see how many uh, they can get. The first one to miss uh, loses, and the one who wins gets to choose something for uh, one of us to watch before the next podcast. So, are you guys ready? Oh, I'm ready. All right. Bring the it. category for this round of Oscar trivia is films that have had four or more acting nominations at the Oscars. Whew. Okay. Films that have had four or more acting nominations at the Oscars. This is a list of 37 films that have been nominated for four or more acting Oscars. Zach, you were the... Uh, you were the winner last time, so you get to decide whether you want to go first or second. I'm going to defer to Todd. <laughs> All right. Todd, you are, uh, you are the first one. Uh, films nominated for four more acting Oscars. Uh, go ahead. Uh, Chicago. Chicago is correct. Uh, the Godfather. The Godfather is correct. Godfather Part 2. Godfather Part 2 is correct. Uh, the film we were just talking about, Terms of Endearment. That is correct. Uh, Silver Linings Playbook. Correct. American Hustle. Correct. Gone with the Wind. Correct. Bonnie and Clyde. Correct. Network. Correct. <clears throat> Zach Screw wanted you, that one. <laughs> I did want that one. You left it open for me, though. Uh, Kramer versus Kramer. Correct. Uh, doubt. Correct. Reds. Correct. Um, my man Godfrey. Correct. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> what the hell? You don't like that one? <laughs> My man, Godfrey. That was a good movie. <laughs> Alice Brady should have won the Oscar. She did win for In Old Chicago. Okay. I know. Um, the lady kicks over a bucket and burns down a building, apparently. <laughs> a Streetcar Named Desire. Correct. On the Waterfront. Correct. All About Eve. All About Eve. Correct. Um, Mrs. Miniver. Correct. Can I just say you're doing much better than I thought you would on this category? Julia. Julia, correct. Wow. It's <laughs> a good one. That's a good one. Rocky. Correct. Coming home. Correct. Um uh East of Eden. East of Eden. I might have three. Is incorrect. So, Zach, do you have one more? From here to eternity. That right. is on the list. Yep. Oh, yeah. Zach is the I winner. Like it. You guys did like really that? well. You guys got. Let's see here. You got one. Like twenty-five, two, four, maybe. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. Twenty-one. 
Yeah, 21 of the 37. That's right. I find it interesting that this has only happened four times uh, since Terms of Endearment. Um, yeah, we had to go. We so had to go back. You had to go back. What was the sure. other? Uh, what was the other one? There was you the two David O. Russell movies in Doubt um, and Chicago. Oh, Chicago. That's right. What were some of the others? All that right. We missed so here are the ones I was that you missed. Bugsy, but I don't think Annette Benning was nominated. Uh, no, from 1943, so. For Whom the Bell Tolls. Also from 1943, The Song of Bernadette. From 1947, Gentleman's Agreement. From 1948, I Remember Mama. From 1948, uh, Johnny Belinda. I've seen like all these movies too. From 1950, Sunset Boulevard. Oh. Yeah. From 1957, Peyton Place. Yeah, that got nominated for like 11. Russ Tamblin. (laughs) Yep, Russ Tamblin. (laughs) From 1958, The Defiant Ones. No. Uh, From 1961, The Hustler. Wow. Also, That's 1961, right. Judgment at Nuremberg. Really? Uh, ni- yep. Uh, Maximilian Schell, Spencer Tracy, Montgomery Clift, and Judy Garland. Yep. Uh, 1963, Tom Jones. Uh, actually had five. Oh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? We forgot that, Todd. You did forget That's Who's Afraid of one. Virginia Woolf in 1966. Uh, 1965, Othello. Wow. Um, We've never got that. 1967, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Yeah, that's easy. God, come on, we gotta get. Uh, 1971, the last picture show. Picture show. We just mentioned that. Come on. I forgot that. And that was like two sporn actors. And the most recent three. one that you missed was from 1977, The Turning Point. Oh, I knew that. Who was the? Okay, so it was Barishnikov and Shirley MacLaine uh, and Shirley MacLaine and, and Leslie Brown. And who else? Leslie Brown. Leslie Brown. How could you forget Leslie Brown? One of the greats. Not, so not there a, you go. Elijah Brown. <laughs> no, not Elijah Brown. <laughs> but close. That was a good one. You guys did did, uh, did pretty well on that. As soon as I saw it and I saw that, you know, there were only like six that took place in the 80s or or more recent than that, you guys were going to really have to work for it. And you guys you guys did well. I should have uh, saved so I, Man Godfrey. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I won, but but I think the badass moment was my man Godfrey pulling that out of your ass. That was that was impressive. That was that was an impressive one. It was. Uh, uh, all right, so Zach, you uh, you get the uh, the honor of picking something for uh, for one of us to watch, or both of us oh, to watch, because you know ooh, Todd did make us ooh, suffer through Holy Motors. Yeah, yeah, that was a good mm. one. <laughs> Best of twenty twelve. Uh, so, uh, do you want to come up with something now, or do you want to wait till I, later? I want to simmer on it. I want to let it burn a little bit. You say simmer on? Right. Yeah. Simmer on <laughs> was not nominated for four acting Oscars. Uh, all right. Uh, with that... I don't that, think they had supporting actor back then. <laughs> with that, let's move into, uh, our last segment here, and that is our quote of the day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack, you bastard. Quote of the day. Uh, for quote of the day, Todd, why don't you start us off? Okay, my quote of the day comes from my uh, choice for the number one uh, children's book adaptation. <laughs> it's from Where the Wild Things Are, and uh, it is by the character Judith, played by uh, Catherine O'Hara. And she says, "You know what I say? If you got a problem, eat it." <laughs> okay. Okay. Yep. Uh. Zach, what about you? 
So my quote of the day comes from Terms of Endearment, the movie that Terry has finally watched. You know, it's like Susan Lucci winning uh, the Daytime Emmy Award. I mean, this is one of the great moments in human history, long overdue. Um, it, it comes in the memorable scene when Garrett and Aurora are on their first lunch date, and it, Garrett says to Aurora, you're just going to have to trust me about this one thing. You're going to need a lot of drinks. And Aurora says, to break the ice. And then Garrett gives it, gives it a pause, <laughs> and then he says... To kill the bug, you have up your ass. <laughs> That's the only way you can say it. It, it is. It is. It, and it's not a bad Jack Nicholson impression there, too. Not bad. Not bad. Not, not uh, much well, my, profanity, uh, though. My quote comes from, uh, comes from The Big Lebowski. Um, there are so many great quotes you can pull out of this. Uh, I was paging through them trying to find a good one. Um, and the one I, I landed on was a little bit of dialogue between Walter and the dude. And Walter is trying to prove a point to the dude. And he says, am I wrong? And the dude says, no, you're not wrong. Am I wrong? You're not wrong, Walter. You're, you're just an asshole. Okay, then. And, uh, yeah, that, 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 that pretty much sums up some of the, uh, the brilliance that's, uh, that's uh, the Big Lebowski. But, you know, you can't really do a John Goodman impression. That's kind of hard. I can absolutely see Danny McBride saying that line, though. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) Am I wrong? Am I wrong? Certainly better than Louis C.K. We'll just put it (laughs) up. Yeah, yeah, but I I can't hear, I can't hear Simone, Simone or whatever his name is saying, uh, saying the other side of the dialogue, though, so. Uh, He's multilingual, you know, I think. Like Daniel Bruhl. There you go. Exactly. He's, he's, Del Toro. he's really going to tie the room together, apparently. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, so uh, thanks again uh, for listening. If, uh, if you haven't done so already, make sure you find us on iTunes. Uh, subscribe. Uh, rate, review, so that uh, more people can, uh, can find us on there. Uh, tell others about our podcast. Uh, find us all over the internet, almostsideways.com on Facebook, on Twitter, uh, the Almost Sideways YouTube channel run by Adam. Uh, And uh, thanks so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.